want to say a couple of things real quick before I begin. I want to say thank you uh, to everyone that calls New City Home, um, not just your generosity as we have not been able to meet together, keeping the mission going forward, um, but also, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on how you handle this, uh, when you gather, what it should look like, and not once did I receive a phone call, email, or text from anybody saying, you need to do it this way, why aren't we doing this way? I think it's just a testament to so many of you guys' hearts, and so thank you to you. I want to say thanks to the staff. If you've been following us online, we've been doing a lot of various things, social media and videos and that sort of thing. You saw my face a lot, but it was really the staff coming up with different ideas, and so thank you um, to to the staff who who, uh, helped us afloat. And last but not least, I want to say thank you to one more person. He's going to hate this, but I uh, enjoy making people feel uncomfortable. Particularly, I want to say thank you to Brian, uh, who... If it wasn't for him, you would be, we would be using an iPhone in the selfie mode for everything that we do. And it's been a lot of time, all the sermons and the videos and everything getting us online this, uh, this week, or the last few months, rather. And uh, so thank you, Brian, for all your hard work. Uh, as a beginner, I want to share a story. I, if you know me, uh, maybe this is not a good thing, but it is what it is. I'm not very um, empathetic. It's not a strength of mine in terms of, like, someone tell me something sad. I don't really know what to say or what to do. I kind of freeze up. I care, but I don't always know how to express it. Uh, but one thing I am is, and I, I, I like to call myself this, is I am physically empathetic. In other words, if you have something wrong with you, I feel it. Like, I'm very uh, queasy. Uh, but not only that, like, my first reaction, if you told me you broke a bone or this, I had an axe or whatever, is to tell you that you're lying because it's disgusting and I can't do it. But I also will grab the, uh, like, unconsciously will grab the region of the body that you're talking about because I feel your pain. Um, in fact, like, if it's me, it's not a big deal, but like, I, can't, I, can't, um, I can't watch a kid with a loose tooth. I can't look at that. Like, I cannot look at that. Uh, I have, we have a five-year-old daughter, two-year-old son. I have never clipped their fingernails. I don't know why, but I can't do it. And not only that, when I have to hold them down, especially when they were younger, and Christina's, I can't even, I'm like looking away as far as I can. <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, when people crack their knuckles... I, I want to vomit. Like, people like this gross. Christina has this lovely habit in the middle of the night. Every night, two to three times a night, she'll just start cracking her fingers away. And I don't want to throw up. Like, in the, in the bed. Like, I can't do it, right? So, so, so physically, if something's wrong with you, you will get me to move very easily. Just tell me something that happened to you, and I'll be like, ugh, and I'll, and I'll move. Now, I share that story because this morning we're looking at this question. What does it take for God to move? Uh, as we look at this idea of, um, you know, what is, what is our role? What does it look like for us to ask God to move? What is it our role to be a part of God's mission? And how can we play a part in what God is wanting to do or is doing? What does it look like for us to, to ask God and to do certain things that God might move with us and on our behalf? That's what we're looking at this morning. And so uh, if you have a Bible, uh, we are in Revelation chapter 3. Um, you can follow along. The, the verses will be on the screen uh, for the next However, however long, uh, but also if you want to have a Bible yourself or if you want to follow along in the black Bibles below the seat, um, that's the page number it can be on. If you haven't been with us, following us online, we are in the book of Revelation. No, this was not uh, chosen because we think the world's ending because of the pandemic. It just happened to be already planned. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, we're just looking at chapter 2 and 3, so the book of Revelation, if you're not quite familiar with it, you might know it's really confusing, uh, but it was written to the seven churches uh, and what is now modern-day Western Turkey. And so there's a lot of, like, end-time craziness and confusion. But at chapter 2 and 3, uh, John, is Jesus' revelation to John, is specifically talking to the seven churches about things that have to do with what they're experiencing in their present first-century context 
And so we're reading and kind of learning uh, with them. And so uh, today we're in uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is uh, the Church of Philadelphia. To give you some context behind what's happening here, uh, Philadelphia was called the gateway to the east. Uh, it was not a port city, but there was a, a couple of major highways and roads that traveled through the city, so there was a lot of trade and commerce there. Uh, leather, textile businesses, and wine was kind of their big thing. Uh, it was located in a vo- volcanic region, which made the soil really well, really good for wine and grape harvests. Uh, the downside is there was a lot of earthquakes. Uh, we know in AD 17, there was such a big earthquake that they experienced aftershocks for the next 20 years. Uh, and then lastly, just like all the regions and the cities and towns in the Roman Empire at this time, uh, they've served, they worship various deities and gods. The god of Dionysus was the big god uh, in Philadelphia because he was worshipped to ensure a productive grape and wine harvest. Now, the problem that we're going to see here is that Jewish believers, that is those who were ethnically and grew up Jewish and started to follow the Messiah, were facing excommunication and really uh, ostracization from their friends and family for rejecting what is kind of, if we want to put it in modern terms, maybe the traditional Jewish faith to follow Jesus. So they're facing excommunication. And then non-Jews, Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish that had started to follow Jesus, uh, were being kind of branded as traitors. And again, what this looks like for them is in the first century context, religious life was tied into everything that they did. And so they would have grown up and be a part of different things. And every festival and gathering, you would have sacrifices to gods. And they started to follow Jesus. They said, no, we can't participate in that. And so their friends and family would also look at them as kind of uh, traitors to the Roman Empire. Why are you not taking part in what you're doing? And so Jew or Gentile following Jesus, while it was not in this region, was not maybe physical persecution or jailing. It was ostracization and social shame. That's what they were experiencing And so here's what it says, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and and who closes and no one opens. And so again, he's right to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. It's this idea, basically he's saying, Tell this to the spirit of the church or to the believers in Philadelphia, that this is coming from the holy and true one. In their context, this would have been understood as like completely reliable. So what is about to be said to you is true and is reliable. Now, uh, basically the context here is that whatever the Messiah says will happen, that Jesus, what he wills, will come to pass. So when it says the key of David, uh, what it's talking about here is talking about when he says when he opens and no one will close. It's a little confusing. Uh, but likely he, he could be talking about Jews who were excluded from synagogues because they were no longer allowed to worship uh, with their Jewish uh, friends and family. Or it could be talking about that when Christ comes, nobody can close the door. Or it could be maybe the admission to the city of David, which is the new Jerusalem. What's likely happening here, I know it's a little bit confusing. What's likely happening here, it seems most likely that he's saying that when Jesus moves, when the gospel is going forth. Nobody can, again, they're they're experiencing excommunication and ostracization. When the gospel is moving forward, nobody can shut the door for those who trust and follow. And Jesus, what's likely probably happening there, that even though they're small in number, their faithfulness has made it possible for people still to experience who Jesus is. Verse 7, he then says, or verse 8, he then says this. He says, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied 
my name. Again, it's a little confusing what he means by open door that no one can close. Uh, he could be talking about maybe a missionary or evangelistic opportunity. Uh, he could be talking about access to Christ, but given verse 7 and 8, again, the context likely is saying here is entrance into God's kingdom. That even though that they're small in number, their faithfulness is making it possible, no matter what people may be experiencing or facing, to experience Jesus and be welcomed into his kingdom. It says they have little power, but they kept his word. Again, the church was materially poor. Now, uh, most of the people in that time period were, didn't, have, didn't have very much money. But again, it was probably even worse for those that were following Jesus because they were going to ostracize and excluded from various things in their community, which would have also had a uh, financial impact as well. They're materially poor, and yet they are spiritually rich. rich. What's happening here is that they're holding on to Christ despite difficulties that they are facing. Or facing. Their faithfulness has left the door open. And as we read this, what, what, what I think Paul is getting at, especially with this question um, of what does it look like uh, to, to be a part of what God is doing and seeing God move, here's what we see. That God moves based on the quality of faith, not the quantity. God moves based on the quality of our faith, not the quantity. In other words, it's not about God needing tons and numerous amount of people to do something. What he needs is people who love him, love people, and are willing to do whatever God asks of him. And we see this, this theme all throughout Scripture. I'll give you a couple examples. You may be familiar with some of these. Some of these you may not be as familiar with. But in the Old Testament, there's a story of Gideon who's leading the Israel to war. And he's got all of these people. And God essentially whittles his army down to 300 uh, soldiers only because he wants to show Israel that it's not them and their power and their might that saves and rescues. It's God. And so he whittles it down to 300. They end up winning. Why? To show that God is looking for faithful people, not a lot of people who may or may not be following him. He doesn't need us. He welcomes us into what he's doing. And so it's, it's, he moves on the quality of our faith, not the quantity. There's also the story of Elijah the prophet, who was basically uh, being persecuted. There was not, uh, Israel was very unfaithful at this time. And so he goes up against 450 prophets of Baal, which was a false god uh, that many of the surrounding neighboring communities and even Israel was worshiping at that time. Uh, they were facing a massive drought, and they built two altars, and the false prophets to Baal were going to call down to their gods from heaven to strike a fire onto the altar. And then Elijah was going to call to the one true God. And so the, the 450 prophets go first. They're beating themselves. They're doing all these things. Nothing happens. And then Elijah shows up. It's his turn. He takes a massive quantities of water, which was a big deal because they were in a drought, and pours it all over his altar, which if you've ever tried to make a fire, wet wood is pretty much impossible. I can't make a fire with dry wood, so I don't even know. You know this is a miracle, right? He calls down from heaven, and God makes a fire onto the altar. He's not looking for num numerous of people. He's looking for people who are faithful. We see this in the New Testament, right? Jesus had a handful of followers, handful of followers, and not just maybe his 12 disciples, but maybe somewhere around 70 men and women who were faithfully following him throughout his earthly ministry, and God used those men and women to do what you and I are doing now, sitting here worshiping Jesus, not because he needed a lot of people. He needed a faithful few who would love and follow him. And lastly, I'll give you one more example. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is outside the temple, and he's seeing people giving to the temple out of their riches, right? So maybe these people felt good, some of the religious leaders, 
but they were giving out of their excess. They weren't being sacrificial. It's maybe the end of the month and their, their budget was looking good, and so they gave a little bit more because they could. And then this widow shows up with nothing, uh, drops two coins into the offering, and Jesus says, this person is not giving out of their excess. They're giving all that they have. Right? He, he says, I'm going to use this. He, it's based off our quality, not the quantity of faith. And so that, that leaves us here today as we face the difficulties, the pandemic, maybe the racial injustices, all the things that you may be personally experiencing in your life. And what this means for us is that God is not looking for everybody in the world to, to follow him in order for him to move. But he is looking for a faithful few who might willing to say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. And so to that end, one of the things I know maybe various people have been uh, following along with us online over these last couple of months, one of the things we started a few weeks ago was uh, fasting, uh, fasting and praying through breakfast and lunch on Tuesdays, if you're able to do that. Uh, and we're talking about food, like actually being hungry. And we're going before God weekly, breakfast and lunch, asking God to move with the coronavirus uh, things that are going on, with the racial injustices that are being brought to light, with the economic impact or anything that you have be, are experiencing, uh, asking God for a repentance of sin and to holiness or people that you know in your life that need God to move. This is one of the ways that we do that, that we, that we develop relationships. Uh, regular rhythms in our life to turn our heart to Jesus so that we might be some of these people who have a quality of faith that God uses, regardless of what you look like, how much money you have, what you have done, how much influence or power. None of that matters. Jesus is looking for the quality of our faith, not the quantity to do something. The church in Philadelphia was materially poor and small, but God was using them in mighty ways because the quality of their faith was strong. And so with that, he continues verse 9 by saying this, he says, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Again, as we've seen these last couple of weeks, first century Christians actually referred to themselves as Jews. Uh, they kind of saw it as they were uh, continuing the Jewish tradition, uh, tradition that, that saw its culmination in Jesus. So they would refer to themselves as Jews. And of course, again, if you want to say maybe the traditional Jews would say, well, no, because you're not doing all these things that, that we're doing and we don't believe in this Messiah Jesus like you do. And so there was this kind of uh, argument over who was actually truly Jewish. And so there was this argument uh, there. And so again, the traditional Jews would say you're not Jewish. And then the Jewish believers would say we actually are because we're, we're seeing the culmination in Jesus. And what, what is happening here is that Jesus through John is saying that ultimately everyone will see and acknowledge who Christ is, that he actually is Lord and will bow down to him. Some will be out of uh, uh, gratefulness and thankfulness for what Christ has done, and some will be out of our shame for thinking that we didn't need uh, God to move and that God is the king of the universe. What he's saying is regardless of how many people believe in this Messiah, believe in me and are following me, it doesn't change the fact that it is true and it will one day be revealed. What this says to us, maybe in a more modern context, is this. That truth is not concerned with popular opinion. Truth is not concerned with popular opinion. Whether or not Jesus is the Messiah has zero bearing about how many people actually follow him. I mean, that is true regardless of how many people believe it. No matter what is going on, because God is righteous and just and holy and good, his standard does not change. So let me give you an example 
about how truth is not concerned with popular opinion. Um, again, I know various people connect with us in various different ways online, but back in April, we did a, uh, a bracket challenge of the best TV show of all time. So some of you might, have, might remember this on our Instagram account. And so the staff were trying to pick 64 shows, so we just like picked 64 shows, and then we're like, oh, we gotta like have seedings, like four brackets of one through 16, just like they do in like the NCAA tournament. And so we we, bra- we bracketed up into like time periods. So you had like oldies and like 90s and 2000s and current or something like that. So then we had the shows, and then we had to seed them. And so one person on staff, whose identity will remain nameless, but his name is Kevin, was arguing um, for this show called Avatar: The Last Airbender. This is that's not gonna work. If you <laughs> hold on, <laughs> so he says we need to include the show, and I'm like, I have never heard of this thing. So just real quick, raise your hands if you've ever heard of Avatar: The Last Airbender. Just raise your hand real quick. Okay, now keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. If you think I'm referring to the movie with like the blue aliens, take your hand down. Okay, so a few. <laughs> and so I'm like Kevin. Okay, you're, you're, so I'm like this is. Okay, this, oh, fine, we'll, we'll put it in there. And then Kevin and company, as I will call them, Kevin and some of his friends, say, well, it has to be a one seed. I'm like, oh, one seed? I know I don't know everything, but there's no way a show I have never heard of should be a one seed. And so they come up with this formula to seed the, the teams, and wouldn't you have it, it happens to be a one seed. Now, again, because truth is not concerned with popular opinion, let me just give you some history. If you're not a college basketball fan like I am, in 1985, they expanded the NCAA tournament to 64 teams. In the 35 years that that has happened, there's only been one time, it happened two years ago, that a one seed has lost to a 16 seed in the first round. One time in 40, 35 years. Well, Avatar was a one seed, and guess what happened? It lost in the first round, right? It only took us one year to make history. Why? Because truth is not concerned with popular opinion. Who cares about this show? I don't know, right? What's true is it was never going to win, no matter how many people thought it was going to. Now, I shared that because this is how this, is what this, is, this, is how this relates to the gospel. The gospel is true whether or not you believe it. Jesus is Lord, whether or not you acknowledge him. And what this also means, however, is that those of us that do acknowledge him and sometimes feel like we don't deserve to be forgiven, it doesn't matter what you think. Sometimes we feel like we don't deserve God's grace. It doesn't matter what you think. Sometimes we, we, we've been praying for family or a, friend or a friend for so long, a coworker, that they would experience the grace and mercy of God, and we don't see how that's ever going to happen. Guess what? It doesn't matter what you think. Because God is good, he is loving, and the gospel is no matter who you are, what you have done, your influence, what you look like, what has been done to you, that you are loved and accepted by God, that God came in the form of a man named Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, which means we worship even in a pandemic. We worship even when our financial situation is completely unknown. We worship even when people are sick and we're unsure about the future. Why? Because God loves us and God cares and we know this isn't the end. And we know that one day we will be in God's perfect kingdom, not because of us, but because of him. And so we worship not out of obligation, but out of a response of what he has done for us because he is Lord. He is king, no matter what people think or no matter what people say. And so we are empowered to follow him, no matter how big or small the number of believers might be in our community or in the world, because he is Lord and he is king. Truth is not concerned with popular opinion. We follow the true God because he is true, and what he has said will come to pass. And so we'll continue in verse 10. Here's what it says next. He says, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those 
who live on the earth. So unlike most of the other churches that, that are addressed in the seven churches of Revelation, uh, this church is not given a rebuke. Right? They have been a faithful church, and so he's commanding them, he's applauding their faith and encouraging them to endure. Right? What he's saying here is that due to their faithfulness, God will keep them. Now, this verse is a little confusing, and uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 are not not that confusing but uh, when it comes to like, Jesus' return, but this is one of the verses that we'll use. So give me a minute or two. If you've been like, man, we're not talking about Jesus' return, that's the stuff I want to figure out. Just give me a second. We'll talk about it for two minutes, and then we'll keep going. There's a little bit of confusion about this verse. When he says he will keep them from the time of trial, it could mean uh, that, that what he's saying there is that he will keep them close. Um, spoiler alert, that is likely what he is saying here, as we'll see in a second. Or it could mean that he will keep them from trial, from trial that is going to come, that, when, that uh, as, as life gets hard and difficult, that he will keep them from experiencing it. So this verse... Uh, is, is given, it's one of the examples, when it comes to Jesus' return, and let me just say this, if you're like, what does New City think? Uh, our stance is we don't have one, regardless of what our stance is, our mandated followers of Jesus is the same. Not to say what it looks like is irrelevant, but it doesn't change what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. So no matter what you might think about the end of the world, um, it's not like a deal breaker for us, because Jesus loves us regardless of what we think it looks like. But however, uh, some people will use this verse to say, if you're familiar with this idea of the tribulation, which is the seven years before Jesus comes back or during, before things, before he reestablishes his reign and rule, some people will say we're going to kind of be raptured up before that happens. Think of the Left Behind series in like the 90s. Remember that? Um, again, people can disagree. I'll tell you that that's biblically an inaccurate pr- portrayal of what's happening. <laughs> Just, okay, someone's excited. Um, it's, and they use ver- a verse like this in a passage in 1 Thessalonians when Paul says, taking them up into the clouds. That's not how they would have understood it the way that we do today. Um, but what's saying here, some people say, well, this means that Jesus will come and, and kind of rapture, take away the believers before the seven years of tribulation. The reason why, that's probably not what he's saying here is twofold. One, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's talking specific things that have to do with the congregation that, that they're actually experiencing. Obviously, they weren't, aren't going to be around because they're not today uh, when Jesus does return. And so it's unlikely that he would kind of throw something that's irrelevant to what they're going on for them. The second reason is because they are experiencing trial, like they are experiencing difficulty. They will continue to experience difficulty. And for a bonus, here's the third one. Uh, before Revelation chapter 19, we actually get no mention of what Jesus' return actually looks like. So we know he's going to come back, but until Revelation 19, it uh, doesn't actually talk about what that might look like. And so for all that to being said, he's likely saying that he's going to keep them close, just like he will keep us close and not abandon us when times are difficult. Verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Again, Jesus is saying, one day I will make all things right, so hold on, right? No one can take their crown. In other words, nobody can take your and my salvation, that if you are in Christ and follow and love and trust in him, that there is nothing you can do that will make God turn his back from you, and there is nothing that you can do that will make God maybe want to disown you or make God ashamed of you, that he is always there for you. Yet, this does imply that we can actually turn our backs on God. What John is saying through Jesus is, don't turn your back on me. Don't forfeit what you have coming to you, because I will always be here for you. And so sometimes people assume, well, if I commit some really big sin, does this mean that God won't forgive me, that I lose my salvation? No, that's not what that means. But what it does mean is that he's calling us to endure, that God won't turn his back on us. So he's saying, don't turn your back on him. Don't walk away from him. And here's why, verse 12. Here's why he's calling us to endure and stay close to Jesus. He says, the one who conquers... I will make a pillar in the temple of God. 
In other words, those who are in Christ will be made a pillar in the temple of God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So the pillar of the temple is essentially a symbolic reference to mean that believers will permanently dwell in God's temple or in God's new creation. That if you are in Christ, not because of what you have done, but because what of what Christ has done for you, that you will be a part of his new creation when he recreates the heavens and the earth, that we will permanently reside in his kingdom. Now, until that happens, what we see repeatedly throughout Revelation, this call to endure. And what this means for us is this, that endurance is the rule of faith, not the exception. What this means for us is that endurance is the rule of faith, not the exception. And here's what this means, especially in our context today. We often think that if something bad happens in our life or to us, We've done something wrong, right? We, we might have done something to deserve it. What did we do wrong? We also think the, this way because our assumption is if something bad happens to us that, that we deem as unfair, we think God doesn't love us because certainly we didn't do anything to deserve it. We kind of assume that if I'm faithful, then I'll be happy, healthy, and wise, that everything will go the way that I want it to go. And so we, so, so we ask, what do I do to deserve it? When something bad happens, we ask, what do I do to deserve it? Because we don't understand that endurance is the rule of faith, that endurance is something that God is calling us to do. The better question then, when something difficult happens to us, is what should I do with it? When hard things happen in our life, we shouldn't ask, what did I do to deserve it as if nothing bad should happen to me? We should instead ask, what should I do with it? Because endurance is the rule of faith. It's not the exception. It is something that we all experience. And so to that end, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 through 18. He says this, For we know uh, that the one who, was ra- who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore... We do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction, he's talking about our experiences in this life. It doesn't take away the difficulty of them, but kind of the time in which they happen. They are momentary when it comes to eternity. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is internal. So what do we do? We endure. The last passage I'll read, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Again, this is idea that he's talking about how we've been declared righteous through faith and what Christ has done for us. He then says this, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our affliction, not because we are glad that we're going through it, but because of what it can produce in us. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, endurance is the rule of faith, and so we endure during hard times so that we can seek the reward that is coming to us. And here's what this means. Again, we're looking at this question. What does it look like for God to move? What can we do to see maybe God move in our midst? And we saw that if God moves based on the quality of our faith, not the quantity, here's what this means, and here's the point. 
that the size of our faith determines the quality of our impact. The size of our faith, not how many people, uh, not how influential we are, not how much money we have, not how much, how much status we have, or how many social media followers we have, or how many people respect us. It's the size of our faith determines the quality of our impact. And if we want to see God to move, we pray towards that end. We pray that we might be in a position where we see God for who he is, that we see his glory for what it is, that we would repent of our sin, that we would pursue holiness, again, not so that God will love us more, but that we might be in a position for God to move. One of my prayers uh, throughout these last three, four months, knowing that things are going to look different and we're all online and we're kind of disconnected, is that when we begin to gather again, as we kind of feel out this kind of awkward first few weeks of who's coming, who's comfortable, what does it look like to interact, that we would come back, and I, one of my prayers is this, that we would have a solid core of people that are ready to pursue Jesus. Ten people, 20 people, I don't, I don't really care what the number is, that we would come back and we would have people that say, I love God, I love people, and we want to be on mission to do whatever God might ask us to do in our families, in our friend groups, with our coworkers, through our Zoom calls, all these things that are happening right now that we would be a people that love God and love people, and that we would worship God even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of the uncertainties of life, because he is a good God that loves us, that he would uh, turn our hearts towards him, that we might have spiritual practices that we are developing to be a solid core of people in response to what God has done to us. Again, the size of our, of our faith determines the quality of our impact, and what this means is that every single one of us can play a part of what God wants to do in this moment. Every single one of us can be a part of what God wants to do because it's not about who you are, what you look like, how much money you have, but the size of our faith. And the prayer for us is that we might be a people that turn our hearts towards him and so that even in the midst of everything that's going on right now, that we would be a people of hope and that we might see God do amazing things, not because of us, but because of him. And we want to be a part of that. Again, the size of our faith determines the quality of our impact. Let's pray.